Welcome to the Eskenazi Health Here For You podcast, where we go beyond the doctor's office and take a closer look at the programs that Eskenazi Health has to offer our patients and the communities we serve. My name is Brian Van Bachlin with the Public Affairs Office, and today we have a very special guest. We're moving up the up the ranks here with this podcast. We're arriving, I guess you could say. Uh, Dr. Ashley Overly is joining us. She's the CEO of Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center and Vice President of the Mental Health Operations for Eskenazi Health, and she discusses, as she discusses, Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center and the Dr. Allen and Diane Breer Prevention and Recovery Center for Early Psychosis, also referred to as PARC. And I'm glad that it is referred to as PARC. Uh, welcome, Dr. Overly. Thanks for joining us here. Uh, first things first, a little bit more about your background, how long you've been here with Sandra Eskenazi, and then we'll dive into everything. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. I feel very honored to be on our podcast. Fantastic. So thank you. So um, so I'm Ashley Overly. Um, I'm a psychiatrist. Um, I actually did all of my medical training here in Indianapolis. So I've been here at Eskenazi in some form or fashion since I was a medical student, as a matter of fact, and then as a psychiatry resident. Um, but then I actually um, joined the staff in 2015. Um, and I my initial role was that I was working at Park. Actually, I worked at Park all throughout my time as a resident as well. Um, but then in 2015, I took a role here as the chief medical officer for quality, um, in addition to my clinical role at Park. Um, and then in 2017, that's when I began my role as CEO for Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center. Yeah, I think one of the first things that uh, after I started this job here, one of the first big events was you becoming CEO of of Sandra Eskenazi. Oh, right, twenty seventeen. Yeah, right, right around there. So yeah, that was like that. That was one of my first memories of Eskenazi. Um, before we get in the park, we'll just kind of uh, uh, step our way into it. How did you land on psychiatry? What was your draw to to this? What, what's your fascination with it? Oh, yeah. Well, it is fascinating. Right? Yes. So, yes. Uh, well, so as a medical student, I was very interested in lots of things. So I did not go into medical school with the specific idea that I wanted to do psychiatry or any other specific thing. I wanted to be very open-minded and really enjoyed a lot of um, different disciplines and different fields. Um, but I liked in particular... Um, in psychiatry, what I noticed about my experience of interacting with those patients was my experiences never got boring. Like hearing people talk about their stories and their experiences and, you know, doing the work that one needs to do as a psychiatrist to understand what someone is experiencing and how we can help them, to me, feels very interesting and very fulfilling. So, for example, you know, talking to someone about, you know, very, very vulnerable and personal experiences of their depression or, you know, their anxiety or their trauma or, you know, how their perceptions are altered really gets at some of the core of things that make us human and how we understand the world and how we relate to other people. And so I felt like it was very, you know, we're getting to like sort of fundamentally interesting things about what it means to be human in a way. Um, and so I felt like that um, was always interesting, no matter how many people I talked to or, you know, what what kind of um, experience they were having. In contrast, I must admit that, you know, talk, asking people about their back pain, that did get boring after a while. And so <laughs> getting, you know, after a while, it's like, you know, all right, that I, okay, I'd rather talk to someone about, you know, their hallucinations than their back pain. So yeah, I think that that would be because you're studying the, I, I guess, I don't know if in the intangibles are the proper words for mm -hmm. it, because everyone has a heart, everyone has a bone, every, you can, yeah, you say, but the brain is the unique, that's, right? that's what truly makes us different, so there is no one size fits all, Right. so, so yeah, so I, I would imagine that 
there's yeah you um for my own personal what's the difference or because we've from way back in the day 20s and 30s horror stories about stuff like that what's the difference how does how does psychiatry and neurosurgery play with each other or do they not is there any like i don't know i'm just curious i was thinking about that driving in today yeah Um, well so i mean a, a lot of neurosurgical interventions are focused on um sort of a lot more uh, sort of concrete uh, motor skills and, you know, strokes and things that are just a little bit more tangible and mm-hmm. fixable. Um, well, I mean, literally fixable because you can do surgery on it, right? So, um, unfortunately, um, for we we don't have a lot of um, psychiatric problems that have neurosurgical um, solutions to them. And so, um, I personally, as a psychiatrist, do not interact a lot with neurosurgeons. Um, there are are a few neurosurgical interventions with sort of very narrow and experimental indications for them, um, like for, you know, deep brain stimulation for OCD or sometimes depression. Um, and so the the neurosurgical indications are very, very narrow. So you'd have to talk to a neurosurgeon probably to get a much more sophisticated answer. Um, but right now within psychiatry, we, we don't have a lot of um, physical interventions um, that really... Uh, influence the diseases that we're treating. I'm just glad to hear that it doesn't go from one and then they pass them on to you. But I don't know. They were fine when they went under. And <laughs> going and right. Yes. No, I can. If they, those neurosurgeons yeah. are, they're, they're doing a good job. They're not, as far as I know, imposing a lot of psychiatric illness on people. So. All right. Let's get into Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center. Um, can you give us an overview? Uh, we'll, we'll start with an overview of the centers of the services that are offered. A lot of stuff is going on with Sandra Eskenazi. And then we'll jump in specifically to parks. So uh, what, you know, what do we offer at Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center? Yeah. So, um, so Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center is a certified community mental health center. And that means that we are certified by our state's division of mental health and addiction to provide a comprehensive spectrum of services um, for individuals with severe mental illness and addiction across the lifespan. Um, So across our state, um, the community mental health center system is really created as a safety net system um, to serve the entire state um, and to serve that very vulnerable population population um, with a spectrum of very specialized uh, supportive services that we know are really important um, to help those individuals thrive in the community. Um, And really, that is our goal, is to help people be as integrated into the community um, as possible. Um, And so to that end, um, we have, like I said, a wide spectrum of services that includes um, acute care and emergency services, outpatient services, residential services. Um, Altogether, we serve um, almost 16,000 patients in a year. across eight different sites throughout the city um, and uh, a wide variety of different programs. So, so over the last uh, couple of years, I think COVID has really brought, you know, mental health services to the forefront. And we did, um, how, from a clinical standpoint or from a psych, how did we do in COVID? Like when, when, when it's coming in and you, we can see the wave coming in 2020 from a mental health care provider, what is going through your head as this is coming. <laughs> well, so um, you're, you are in fact correct. Um, COVID was quite a wave of a lot of uh, 
different challenges beyond just the COVID virus itself. Um, and so I think the thing that most mental health providers were thinking was, oh my goodness, we're not meeting our current state needs. And now those needs are getting even worse. The gap is widening. Um, the gap between what we need and what we have is getting even wider. Um, and so the, by some uh, different surveys, rates of anxiety and depression actually quadrupled um, during the pandemic. Um, uh, rates of of uh, drug uh, use and overdose deaths we know have also increased uh, throughout the time of the pandemic. Um, so we did have very definite signs that uh, mental health needs were increasing. Um, and, and unfortunately, the number of resources that we have to meet those needs uh, did not, in fact, increase um, throughout the time of the pandemic. Um, we worked very hard um, to meet the needs um, as we always do, work very hard to try and meet those needs um, as, as best as we possibly could. But I think potentially what I hope is one positive outcome is that I do think that there was a lot of attention and awareness um, drawn during that time to that ongoing discrepancy and the ongoing need to advocate for mental health um, resources. And so um, one thing I'm very grateful to see, for example, is that um, additional um, mental health infrastructure is very high on the state's legislative agenda this year, for example. Um, and so nationally, there's been a lot of attention and investment in really continuing to transform and invest in mental health resources. And so um, there, this past year was implemented um, 988, um, which was a change to our National um, Suicide Prevention Lifeline to make that more accessible to people um, with the acknowledgement um, that we need to invest additional resources to build out the infrastructure that goes along with that. And so there's a recognition that, you know, we can't just have a number to call. We also have to have um, response infrastructure and treatment infrastructure to be able to support that as well. Additionally, there's um, a model of care called the Certified Community Behavioral Health Clinic, or CCBHC, um, that's been in a pilot phase um, for many years, um, but is a reform of um, really not just clinical services, um, but also financial modeling of how to support those services, which is really the critical part. We do have services that are effective, um, but we don't have um, financial reimbursement models that sustain or disseminate those um, models. And so those are some national level um, initiatives that are really gaining, I think, some uh, awareness and some uh, momentum behind them. And I'm grateful that in, in our state, in Indiana, that there's growing awareness and support for those things too. So. Uh, we're here with Dr. Ashley Overly, the CEO of the Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center. Uh, now, as we shift over to PARC, which is the Prevention and Recovery Center for Early Psychosis, um, th this is a unique center. I think there's only two of them in the state of Indiana who offer these kinds of services. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. So tell us more about what happens at PARC and why this these centers are so important or this center is so important. Yeah, so um, I feel like it's been a great privilege for me to work at PARC, like I said, since I was a resident. Um, and PARC is modeled off of a treatment model called Coordinated Specialty Care um, that has been studied around the world um, as a model of treatment for individuals who are in early stages of psychotic illnesses. And so these are individuals who are in the very early stages of what um, is likely to be a lifelong serious mental illness. Um, and so what we 
we have learned from research over several decades across the world um, is that if you can identify those individuals early in the course of their illness and provide wraparound supportive services to them, um, then they are likely to have better outcomes in terms of less hospitalizations, less burden of symptoms, better quality of life, um, better uh, vocational outcomes and educational outcomes. Um, and you really have a very important chance to um, influence someone's understanding of their illness at that time, their family's understanding of their illness, and help um, reinforce a lot of existing supports in their life, too, before the illness takes its toll um, and they're many years later um, experiencing a lot of the negative consequences of an illness. Um, and so it's an early intervention model um, that focuses on providing um, support, education, family engagement, um, individual and group psychotherapy, um, and support for education and employment goals as well. So it's te it's a team-based care um, and again, study after study around the world has shown that this is a model that's associated with better outcomes. And so one of the exciting things in the United States is that um, the this is something that we've been able to replicate these studies here in the United States as well. And there's been a lot of support at a national level for um, disseminating this treatment model. And so we've actually been the sole recipients of the state um, grant for this uh, treatment model since 2014 until actually just this past year, um, then we were able to actually help train another site to be able to um, uh, share, do the same kind of services. So we feel very proud to be influencing care in other parts of the state as well um, and very proud to be able to offer this you know, nationally recognized best practice. So what are some of the symptoms of early psychosis what 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 should be because I, I think we you might have to be careful that you don't push a person farther by saying you're sick we got to get you some help you right know? like what do we what do we look what should someone be looking for yeah absolutely yes thank you and and psychosis can be a scary word right like that's something that a lot of people have a, a lot of different associations with what that means and it gets used in different contexts to mean different things but it actually does have a very specific uh, medical meaning so when we use that um, in in psychiatry um, we are referring very specifically to a set of symptoms um, that includes changes to a person's thinking. Um, specifically, it can include um, uh, changes to the way they perceive the environment, um, and it can include disorganized thinking and communication and behavior. Um, and then also uh, can include um, what we call negative symptoms, um, which is like withdrawal um, and loss of normal functioning. So um, reduced uh, motivation to engage in you know, activities around you. So withdrawing from social relationships um, and uh, sometimes even um, slowed uh, communication and speech. Um, we call it, we talk about impoverished speech, um, a person um, really not being able to, to speak and communicate um, very clearly. Um, and so one of the things that's so, I think, difficult about this, uh, this group of illnesses um, is that sometimes the signs can be very, very subtle. Um, and so, in fact, uh, we know that most people have um, what we would call a prodrome period where they're experiencing very, very subtle signs um, that 
probably don't meet criteria for, uh, you know, diagnosable mental illness. And it may be extremely subtle, like I mentioned, withdrawing from relationships, uh, maybe struggling in school, um, and uh, maybe having some odd ideas or odd beliefs um, that are different than things that they talked about before, um, or that seem to be different from you know what they're what's sort of part of their family's culture. Um, and so it's very hard at that stage to um, rec- or to recommend a specific treatment. At that time, it's very hard for anyone to really identify um, that there might be a problem. It's very easy to sometimes attribute that to like, oh, they're stressed or, you know, they're, uh, well, you know, where there's a lot of changes going on. I mean, they're young people, they're tra- transitioning life stages a lot of times. And so it's very easy to um, identify other potential explanations for um, why they might be experiencing changes. Um, and so uh, there are research tools that can uh, sort of identify um, people at what we call an ultra-high-risk state for developing psychosis. Um, but those are those are things that are mostly done in the context of research studies um, and still have a limited ability to predict who's going to go on to develop a psychotic illness. And so the point at which I see people in the early psychosis clinic is when they have um, developed symptoms that reach a level of prominence that it's definitely interfering with a person's life, where it's definitely causing difficulty functioning um, at school or at home or in their job. Um, And so it might be, for example, um, that a person is um, refusing to go to school and they are experiencing ideas that their family identifies as not reality-based, or they might be hearing or seeing things that other people can't see or hear um, and talking about those things. Um, and not recognizing um, the, that other people aren't also hearing them or not recognizing that those things are out of the ordinary. Um, and so um, a lot of times at that point, um, people might seek treatment, um, but unfortunately, um, sometimes people do not seek treatment until they are at a, at a place where they actually become hospitalized because their behavior is so disruptive or disorganized um, that people um, are not sure how to respond to them and not sure to how to how to keep them safe. Um, and so a lot of times the people that I see at Park are referred from the hospital when they've been hospitalized with those kind of symptoms, um, and then they realize um, that they need treatment and follow up after that. So with the risk of inadvertently sounding flippant, and it's not my my goal, what's the difference, I guess, between puberty and early psychosis. So, um, so, cause a lot of that, I, I could see, I, I, I totally understand and be like, he's just going through a phase. He's grow out of it. Of course he doesn't want to hang out with his family. He's 16, you know I mean? But yeah. there could be something else actually going on there. So where do you draw those lines, I guess. Right, yeah. Well, you're right that some of those things can be very confusing, um, and especially if it's in those sort of subsyndromal stages, um, they might not necessarily be distinguishable. Um, However, it's at the point where you really see a decline or drop-off in functioning. Like, hey, this person was previously, you know, making good grades and, you know, or at least passing their classes, and now all of a sudden they've gone to failing all of their classes. Um, or this person uh, quit their job because they believe that they're being surveilled by the FBI at their job. Um, And so definitely those um, 
those times when people are having perceptions about the world around them that become disruptive. So when those perceptions themselves cause dysfunction, um, so for example, they're, they are become distrustful of their parents because they believe that their parents um, are conspiring against them to harm them. Um, that would be a, a perception that is disruptive, um, probably false, um, and uh, would be something that might be a sign of a, of a psychotic illness. And how do you, how do you treat that? I mean, I, I, I assume I'm, I would imagine the treatment is much more than just bringing the person in, talking to them and diagnosing them. Specific. I would assume you, there, there's environmental aspects that go into this. Family has to come in. Maybe you have to have a tough conversation with the family and be like, there's nothing wrong with your kid. Just life is hard. You know, I mean, how, how does, how does that, how does the treatment work for this? Right. So, well, you are absolutely right that it is, it is multifaceted. And I assure you, we, we never bring someone in and say, guess what? You have schizophrenia, here's some medicine. And then everyone goes along their way and, and everything is uh, better. It is, indeed, it's a relational process. Um, and it requires um, really multifaceted support that's very responsive to what that each individual person and their family's goals are in the moment. So the priority may be different in any given moment for a specific person um, based on what sort of phase of the illness they're in and what they're experiencing in that moment. And so, um, uh, you know, sort of the first thing always is safety. Is a person safe? Is their family safe? And so, um, you know, sometimes we have to make hard decisions about um, whether a person needs to be in a hospital or not um, in order to help keep them safe. Um, uh, and we always want to make sure that that we're having conversations with people um, about you know what they're experiencing and uh, thinking through what what all the different treatment options are at any given moment. Um, and so um, we do use antipsychotic medication um, that can help a lot with especially with some of those perceptions, helping decrease um, the amount of auditory hallucinations a person is having, helping reduce some of the intensity of um, paranoia or delusions, um, helping their thinking be more organized. Um, but um, it's also very important for people to be engaged in um, therapy in order to help on make sense of what they've been experiencing and continue to make goals for their life to continue to move forward. So, because that what I have, I know one psychiatrist who has a, a picture on his wall that says "pills don't teach skills," and so <laughs> um, we can help alleviate symptoms, um, but people still often need a lot of support to help develop. Um, relational skills, problem-solving skills, coping skills. Um, and so that's a place where therapy can be really helpful um, for helping people um, reinterpret what, what's happening to them. You know, a lot of people um, have a very a sort of uh, specific idea of, of what they've experienced. Um, and, it, you know, they might believe a lot of different things about why they experience the symptoms that they did. Um, and sometimes um, those stories can be helpful and sometimes and sometimes not. And so um, sometimes people believe things that might make them feel really badly about themselves, that they might internalize a lot of stigmatizing ideas about what it means to have experienced a mental illness. And so part of the work of therapy is pe helping people understand their experience in a way um, that helps them move forward um, and develop healthy, positive relationships and make meaningful progress on goals like getting a job or, um, you know, having, uh, being able to 
enjoy life and do things that are meaningful and fun for them. Uh, with, with, with Park, how can someone seek treatment at Park? Is it a referral only? Is there a 1-800-I-NEED-PARK phone? <laughs> like, is uh, how can someone who m thinks they they might need help uh, these services, how can they get in touch? But, so the number is not 1-800, but, <laughs> but there is a number. I can share it with you. Um, the number, in fact, is 317-880-8669. Um, so that is our referral line. So, in fact, anyone can call that referral line um, and speak to our intake coordinator um, who will We'll ask some questions um, to help, you know, verify um, what a person ex is experiencing and help get an idea of, you know, whether PARC is the best fit for that person. We do have, for example, some age criteria. We see people between ages of 14 and 35 um, within five years of the onset of their illness because um, we are really trying to focus on that early psychosis and early stages um, of illness because there's um, some unique um, things that people are going through at that age. Um, and so we want to make sure and, you know, focus our, our resources and our expertise on that group. So um, there are some screening questions that the intake coordinator will ask. Um, and uh, and then if, if it is appropriate, we'll make an appointment and get someone uh, signed up to see the team. So what are, what are the things that you look for? to let you know that this treatment is working with somebody? Are there benchmarks you look to hit? Are there milestones mm -hmm. you try to get through to or maybe you need to adjust the strategy or it's work, what, any of those things. Right. Yeah. Thank you. That's a really important question. Um, and actually, you know, a, a, a deeply difficult question on some levels, like, right. So there's lots of, you know, research going into like, you know, can we, are there scales that we can use or are there, um, tests that we can use to help us really understand if someone is, is improving and getting better. So, um, so there are some very complicated ways that you can think about it, but at the end of the day, um, honestly, what I, <laughs> our main goal is that the person and their family feel like they're getting better. So, yeah. um, and so rec being able to see that the challenges that a person had that brought them to treatment, that those are resolving. And so um, in particular, um, seeing that a person um, is reaching their own personal goals um, and that they're able to function in a safe and healthy way in their context and in their community. So maintaining healthy relationships with other people that can be supportive um, and uh, maintaining their safety. And so um, so a lot of times we're working on helping people develop as much independence as possible. Um, so learning skills like riding the bus um, and how to navigate different resources in the community um, and, um, you know, really, really make sure that they are, uh, that they, they also perceive that they are doing better. And sometimes that means, you know, very concretely just th that symptoms are getting better, you know, that they're not having hallucinations, that their mood is not depressed, um, and that they are able to, you know, get up and engage in healthy activity every day. Um, but beyond just symptom reduction, it's very important to us, um, that people are engaged in meaningful life activities. Um, that are integrated in the community. I, I could talk to you about this stuff all day, but I know that you're busy, so I don't want to hold you up too long. Um, where do you see, uh, and again, we're talking with Dr. Ashley Overly, CEO of Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center. She's talking about PARC, the Prevention and Recovery Center for Early uh, Psychosis. Where do you see mental health care going in the future? I, it, for better or worse, I think it got a great bump from from covid and its importance so 
where do you see it? Because I, I know a lot of people kind of get it and, and they get it when they're in crisis or they think they might need. Is this maybe something that like you see your general uh, practitioner every six months? Maybe you see your psychiatrist every six months. Is that somewhere where we might be going or where in your perfect world, how do you envision your your care moving forward. Right. Yeah, thank you. That's a really good question. It's very wow, it's a very very sophisticated question. It I'm could be answered. Yeah, so <laughs> no, this is good. Well, there are a lot of different um perspectives from which we could answer that, right? And so um from a sort of neuroscience perspective, like we we want and need better treatments. And so um in particular for schizophrenia, um the kind the class of medicines we've been using, the kind of medicine that we have are they're they're kind of old. They've been around for several decades. And so um there is um some innovation right now in looking at medications that work on different receptors in the brain in order to hopefully maybe better treat some of the symptoms that we're not very good at treating right now. Um, and so we need innovation in the, you know, the actual medication itself. Um, I think that one of the things that's really important and meaningful about um, the early psychosis model of care that we've been working in at Park is that, you know, it's, I think, bring highlighting nationally just the importance of high quality treatment teams and so not just do we have medication that's effective but can we develop a care team that's effective and when we have the funding to do so we can and so there are some who argue that like well there's nothing particularly special about this model of care it's just good care like that's why it that's why it works because you're able to fund a team to have you know all of the of, of the wraparound services so you have a nurse and a psychiatrist and a care coordinator and a therapist all working together um, with a reasonable caseload size to be able to provide really high quality care and so that's not magic that's good care um, and so it, you know there are many who say you know this what this shows us um, is not that we need these super specialized little teams, but that at a large scale, um, we need to be funding good care that allows, you know, reasonable patient caseloads and um, holistic support um, uh, no matter what stage of the illness you're in. So, you, you know, you shouldn't have to have, you know, an early uh, psychotic illness um, in order to be able to have access to that special kind of team, um, which I quite agree with. And so uh, I mentioned earlier CCBHC, and I think that that's a step towards that. It's recognizing that, like, yes, we have treatment models um, that work, we actually need to finance them. And so I think that each person's relationship with the system of care will look different depending on the severity of their illness. Um, and so I think for people who have severe mental illness, um, you know, those are individuals who might be engaging really frequently with a team. And so I think in an ideal state, then people, you know, we actually have teams that can go out and visit a person's home, um, sometimes even on a daily basis, um, and make sure that they are safe and getting what they need. Um, but there may be people who um, only need to, you know, come in once a year, twice a year, um, get their refill for their medication, and and then and be good to go. So I think it's highly highly dependent on sort of the level of an individual person's needs. But what I think would be ideal is if we have a system of care that can meet um, any of those needs. 
um, reliably. So, and I think we have we have a lot of good ingredients right now, um, but I think we have a lot of a, a lot of opportunity still to go. You're bringing a tear to my eye. This is the, <laughs> I swear because I like I. I really love what, what you guys do. And as a person who about a year, year and a half ago threw up the white flag myself and said, I, I, I need some help. Um, it's just, it's, I think it, I think it is the, it, I, I don't know if it's the most important, but it's just so important what's going on and, and people to, for people to understand that of course it's okay to not be okay. And there are people here who want to help you And there. Sometimes you just have to sit down and be able to be self-indulgent and talk about yourself for an hour is what, you know? Um, so is there anything that to, to protect me from myself? Is there anything we have not talked about on this? You want to make sure that you get out there. Oh man, there's, we could go on forever. I, I could, so, like, yeah. seriously, can we have you as a reoccurring guest on this thing? <laughs> so, and whatever you want to talk about, I would like to put an open invitation. <laughs> like I, I seriously could talk to you for hours about mental so, health. It is fascinating. Well, be careful what you wish for. So <laughs> No, 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 no. Bring it. So, we were told we can't end the podcast. So you, 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 you're coming in a lot. So, so yes, well, yeah, well, I mean, indeed, yeah, I I mean, as I said, I think mental health is fascinating. So <laughs> sure, I would be like, yes, this would be a pleasure to be yeah. able to sit and talk as, as long as you would indulge Again, that. Again, be careful so. what you wish for because we will, and your office is right around I, the corner. So we'll be, right. in there, be like, Dr. Overly, we got nothing. You just come in and talk to us for a little while. <laughs> so yeah, I think, I mean, truly, I think the topics are fascinating. And sort of like I said at the beginning, because it's so, I think mental health um, gets to so fundamentally how we understand ourselves as human beings and how we understand the world. Um, and so I think that, you know, there, there are few topics I, th I think are, are so fascinating and can be understood from, you know, very neuroscience and philosophy and culture and, uh, you know, a politics and sociology and you know what all of that emanates from our brains yeah. um and so i think that's really cool and, and really interesting so um so so in terms of our conversation today um <laughs> I think, you know, I, I think we've done a good job of talking about, you know, wh why why I love Park. I get to help people recover at a, a really critical time um, of their of their life um, and people who are sort of newly experiencing um, what often becomes a severe mental illness. Um, and so we want to set people up in order to know that there's help, that there are resources, um, that they can recover in a meaningful way, um, and uh, that they don't have to... Uh, even though these are illnesses that can be extremely challenging, um, that there are also um, really important and helpful supports that can help them navigate that in a way um, that helps make it less scary than it has to be. So, Dr. Ashley Overly, one more time, the phone number for Park. We've gotten so far removed right. from it. So, yes, it is area code 317-880-8669. Uh, you can also find information about Park on the EskenaziHealth.edu website. Fantastic. Thanks a lot for coming in. I'm going to hold you to that because uh, it's been a fantastic conversation. Uh, she's Dr. Ashley Overly, the CEO of Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center. I want to thank Joe and Rachel, as always, for getting everything together. You can find this episode and all of our episodes on SoundCloud, Apple Podcast. Uh, find more information on all the social media channels. And uh, thank you very much for coming. We really appreciate you taking some time to follow us today. Thank you we'll so much. We'll talk to you next time on the Eskenazi Health Here <laughs> For You podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. 